You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Sox Degrees. Our guest this week is a groovy friend, Dan Epstein, an author, an award-winning journalist who has uh, written several baseball books about the 1970s, and he is uh, not just in my opinion, but uh, the opinion of most who know these things, the most knowledgeable person on the planet about not only 1970s big league baseball and its cultural significance, but maybe more about rock and roll than anyone (laughs) I know. And he has a new book out. Uh, It's a collaboration with Ron Bloomberg called The Captain and Me on and off the field with Thurman Munson. We will get into that a little later. Dan, welcome to Sox Degrees, and let's dive in. Uh, No small small talk here on the podcast. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) What is your earliest baseball memory? Um, my earliest baseball memory, I think it would be the 1969 World Series because I would have been three. Uh, my dad was a huge Mets fan. Uh, we just we moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan about a year earlier, but he was uh, terribly homesick the entire time we lived there. So any sort of New York connection, he could uh, he could keep going. Um, so obviously when the Mets were in the series in 69, it was a big deal to him. And my my visual with that is I re- remember seeing a shot of like a, I guess it must've been like a hot double down the left field line and somebody in the stands reaching over and to grab the ball and, and that that was a problem. And I remember my dad like yelling at the TV about it and uh, explaining to me that you should not reach. If you're at a ball game, you do not reach over the rail and, and grab the ball. So uh, I've actually never, I, I keep meaning to go back to the 69 world series and like try to find that moment uh, that, that initial baseball moment uh, for me, but uh, I, I haven't done so yet. Well, it's in a good segue because on a recent uh, edition of this podcast, Jason said that he stopped watching Andy Griffith when it went from black and white to color, that that was a demarcation that essentially that show was over. Not that there were awful (laughs) episodes after, but that it just didn't have its significance. Right. Whereas you as a baseball fan, and tell me if I'm wrong, it feels like it's the opposite, that when baseball went from black and white to vibrant color in the early 1970s, that's what really grabbed you. Is that an accurate statement? Well, no, but but that's only because we didn't have a color TV till 1975. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, I, I do think that, you know, the, the importance of color TV uh, with baseball and, and its connection to baseball in the 70s is something that's often really overlooked like basically that's why all these teams started adopting really colorful uniforms in the 1970s was because the 70s was the first time that more Americans had color TVs than black and white so it was really like a a kind of a genius marketing uh, thing in, in a sport that was not really good at marketing 
at that point. Um, Charlie Finley, of course, with the or the, well started it with the Kansas City A's, the uh, kind of um, really vibrant green, gold, and white. He was the first person to really kind of cotton to the idea that that you know people would be people would want to watch the team even if they were terrible if they looked cool so um and and that really by by the early 70s that really caught on that also had uh you know the, the um exchange of the, the wool uh flannels for the polyester double knits had a lot to do with that too because you could make uh, polyester double knits a lot more colorful than you could make wool flannels. Uh, is there any better Sports Illustrated cover than Dick Allen juggling and smoking? <laughs> it's certainly in my top three, I think. Um, yeah, no, actually, that yeah, that's probably it. I, I can't think of a better one. Plus, he's wearing that sweet uh, early 70s White Sox uh, you know, with the red pinstripes. And I, I love that. That's probably my favorite White Sox uniform that, uh, you know, both both the home with the red pinstripes and the away with the, the uh, powder blues set against the really like vibrant red. I think that's just such a great look. I wish they'd go back to it. What what about baseball in the 70s brings the smile that we just saw on the stream here? to your face and doesn't allow it to leave. Oh man. I mean, how much time you got? I, th I think, you know, for me, it's, I guess it, it mostly comes back to that. Seventies baseball is when uh, that the seventies is when baseball and pop culture really collide in a way that they hadn't done so before. And in a lot of ways never did again. It's like there, there was just this huge spillover, um, between what was going on in, you know, the, the, in sort of the, whether, whether it's, you know, the hippie movement, the black power movement, the, um, the disco movement, there's, there's so much overlap into the sport. And, you know, you just have to go back to the sixties and it was like baseball was in this sort of bubble, like whatever was happening in the rest of America, it wasn't impacting baseball at all. But in the 70s, you have all these players. I think a lot of it is because you have a lot of a lot of these players had been in college in the 60s and had, you know, intentionally or not absorbed a lot of the kind of change in attitudes that was happening on, on American college campus and then brought it to the ballpark uh, in the 1970s. And I think it just made for a much more fun, interesting uh, unusual uh, decade in the game. And then at the same time, so much that happened in the 70s in baseball continues to impact the game today. And, and I, when, I, when I started out to write Big Hair and Plastic Grass, my first 70s baseball book, it was really with the intention of you know, shining the spotlight on that and, and on a decade that I really felt was very underappreciated both for its impact on the game and for the incredible characters who played the game in that period. I also think the 70s in general were kind of the, the Wild West in sports. You had the World Hockey Association, um, you know, the ABA. World uh, Football League. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it, it, was, it was like no experiment uh, was off limits uh, on the sports uh, landscape, but 
you're right about baseball and and you mentioned television and I think it was a really important decade for baseball on television because you think about Hank Aaron's home run, you think about Carlton Fisk's home run. Um, there are these iconic moments, Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. Uh, those things still to this day, Dan, resonate. And we're almost 50 years later now. It's really incredible. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron 715th home run, that's really like the, you know, if you're talking my own baseball memories, that's the first one I have where I really understood what was going on. I understood what was at stake. We had a conversation in my second grade classroom the day before, like, you know, Hank Aaron is, is, uh, you know, is going to break Babe Ruth's record and what that means and what that means that a black player is doing this. And, you know, it was, so I remember, you know, usually I think it was a Monday night. So usually we would, I would be watching the rookies, which was a popular cop show at the time, but, and, and would get annoyed if, uh, if my dad changed it to something else. But, you know, the idea that we were going to watch uh, Hank Aaron play this baseball game against the Dodgers uh, and that, you know, there was a good chance that he would break the, the record while we were watching. I mean, that was like, you know, I knew I was about to see history made and that was incredibly exciting for me. And, it's, you know, I still get chills thinking about it to this day. And, and you know, before we, we get out of that decade, maybe, and, and wander around here, and, and we talked on an earlier podcast about um, uh, a year ago about the teams that were dominant in that era and in you know, baseball now, you think a lot about the, the, the big teams, the, the Yankees, uh, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, all those teams. And while mid to late 1970s, those teams uh, started to you know, get to the playoffs in the World Series, you had the Orioles and the Pirates and the aforementioned A's and the Big Red Machine, the Reds. Uh, it, it, it was a different decade, that era, where you didn't have the big guys and then everybody else. It, it really got spread around the wealth, so to speak, in the 70s, right? Yeah, even the teams that didn't quite make it, like um, the Kansas City Royals. In the second half of the 70s, the Royals teams were incredibly exciting to watch and uh, you know, came, came very close to, uh, to going to the World Series. Uh, same with the Phillies. I mean, it's interesting to me that 1980 – both the Royals and the Phillies finally make it to the World Series together after being, you know, repeatedly uh, shut down uh, just, you know, a game or two away from it. Uh, and then, of course, you have like, you know, the the 72 White Sox and the 77 Southside Hitmen, which, you know, teams that were kind of in contention and, you know, for a while looked like they might, you know, they might take the division and they didn't. But they were so much fun to watch that they they really you know, left their mark on anybody who, who was around for, for, uh, you know, for those seasons. What is it, by the way, just as an aside, um, about the teams that didn't quite make it, that still resonate with fan bases, right? It's the, you know, you and I uh, have our Michigan connection. Uh, there are some Tiger teams that didn't quite make it that still are near and dear to Tiger fans' hearts. You mentioned the 77 Sox, the 69 Cubs, there is something about baseball that teams that didn't quite get there still hold a very special place in fans' hearts. Yeah, I think that there is that, you know, that sense of like, you know, you took the ride with the team and and it didn't quite pan out, but 
you were completely invested and you know you 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 know there were those moments where you thought like yes this is it this is finally you know i mean i i wasn't paying attention in 69 but anybody i talked to who followed the cubs back then you know it was like it, it, they they just gave their hearts to that team and and same with the 77 south side hitmen it's like you know going into august they were in first place and it looked like you know and it was and even then and and you know i do remember the 77 Sox team and it, and even then it was like this is a really flawed team you know really didn't have much pitching terrible on defense not much speed but they could hit the bejesus out of the ball. And, you know, and you had like guys like Richie Zisk and Oscar Gamble who just, you know, were showing up for that one season. And, and you know, and every game seemed like a party. Every game at Comiskey seemed like a party. And so there was just, you know, I think anybody being realistic that summer probably would have been like, yeah, the Royals are probably going to come back and, and take the division, which they did. But, you know, if you were along for the ride, you will never forget it. Yeah, I was I was reading this story on Fangraphs the other day about why we love bad players. <laughs> like why we love bad baseball players. And they mentioned Don Kelly and Augie Ojeda and Munanori Kawasaki. I'm interested as I was reading this and I knew we were going to talk to you. Who are your favorite bad players? Oh man, that's a great question. You know, I don't think anyone has ever asked me that. Um, oh wow, wow, wow. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you my least favorite bad player uh, in 1976. That that was the only year that I rooted for the Yankees because I thought it was kind of cool that the. Uh, well, a I love Thurman Munson, and we'll get to that. Um, but I I. I thought it was really cool that the the Yankees were kind of uh, in the World Series after you know being away for so long, you know, twelve whole years. But when when you're ten years old, twelve years seems like a long time. So, uh, but I remember Fred Chicken Stanley, who was the Yankee shortstop, who was awful, and I remember just like just resenting it, like like did you know because they were playing the Reds and the Reds had David Concepcion, who was fantastic. And I remember just thinking, like, why do they have to have this guy? Like, you know, who who is putting a gun to Billy Martin's head and running him out in the lineup? But then I find out many years later that Billy Martin loved Fred Stanley because he reminded him of himself. So he was very uh, um, resentful when when uh, George Steinbrenner got Bucky Dent and forced Billy to put Bucky Dent in the lineup instead of Fred Stanley. Um, in terms of favorites, though. I would have to say, I'm thinking back on those, you know, in the 70s as a kid, my two, well, I was really into the Tigers, really into the Dodgers because I was spending the the summers out in, in LA with my mom. Um, I would, I mean, he wasn't bad, bad, but I really liked Lee Lacey on the, the, the Dodgers. He was, you know, he was this guy who was like, you know, on on another on another team, he could have been a starter, but the Dodgers were just so loaded in the outfield, or you know, or so unwilling to to take Rick Monday out of the lineup, even if they should have. Uh, that uh, you know, Lee Lacy could never really get any traction on the team, so I was kind of rooted for him because I thought he deserved better. 
I, I love I love that the emotions of childhood do not ever go away. Like you're like, even if they should have. And there's a there's a tinge, there's a tinge of hate that still lingers. And God, I love that about baseball. Well, I mean, here, here's an example. Like uh, uh, several years back, a friend of mine, when I was still living in L.A., a friend of mine visited me uh, there, a guy who had been my best friend in like fifth and sixth grade in, in back in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, I hadn't seen him in years. And, and, you know, he came over to my house and we had lunch. And it was great. And uh, we started going through my uh, like baseball programs, you know, stuff that I was looking at when I was writing Stars and Strikes. It was, I had a big pile of stuff from 1976 because that's what the book is about. And I handed him the uh, Tiger's uh, yearbook from 76, you know, the one that they published at the beginning of the season that, you know, you could buy at Tiger Stadium. And I handed it to him. And the first thing that he said was not, wow, was not, oh, cool. You know, what the first thing he said was, Tigers suck, which was the exact thing we always used to say back in 1976 because the Tigers did suck with the exception of, you know, Mark Fidrich, who kind of came out of nowhere that season. And, you know, Ron LaFleur had a great year and rusty stuff. But, like, that's what we would say to each other in school was kind of like, you know, almost like this this bonding thing, like, yeah, Tigers suck. Like, you know, we're too cool to root for these guys, even though we love them because we know they suck. And yeah, it, right, right out of the well of childhood. Oh, that is so great. That is so great. Well, let's get into the book. Uh, the, the new book is out. I haven't read it yet. It is on my list. The Captain and Me. You collaborated with Ron Bloomberg and uh, another fascinating guy in his own right. But it's the story of their relationship, right, uh, Ron and Thurman Munson. Tell, tell us about the project. Yeah, so so basically, uh, you know, Ron was, you know, Ron is kind of a, a cult baseball figure. Uh, he was, of course, the first uh, first player to have to come up as the designated hitter in an official major league game back in '73. He was also a very popular Jewish ball player in New York. He was really the first. Jewish star that the Yankees had. So he's still very beloved in New York, um, in the Jewish community because of this. Um, and he approached me about, uh, wanting to write a book about his friendship with Thurman Munson. Uh, he, he and Thurman, and this, I did not know before I started talking to him, he and Thurman were best friends during the days that they, they were on the Yankees together, which was basically, 1969 to 77. And um, Ron really had the opportunity to see sides of Thurman that most uh, most people did not get to see. And, you know, I was a huge Thurman fan as a kid. And, you know, when he died in the plane crash in August uh, 79, I mean, it was absolutely crushing to me. Uh, but I had a very limited, very narrow view of who he was as a person. Um, and talk, in talking with Ron, you know, it became clear that there was a lot to him beyond what, how he was kind of represented in the sports media of the time. You know, it was a, uh, sports reporters tended to write about him as this very nasty person, this very kind of gruff, um, thin-skinned uh, person who, did, you know, didn't, you know, he just wanted to be left alone and, and play baseball, which, you know, and there, were, there was a truth to that, but there was also a real, um, 
you know, he, there is a real sweetness to him and a real loyalty to him, a, a loyalty in him uh, towards his fellow players. If you, you know, if you gave everything out on the field, Thurman would love you forever. And that's, that was really kind of the crux of his relationship with Ron. And Ron was a very different person than Thurman. Ron, Ron to this day is very gregarious, loves everybody, what, you know, uh, has, you know, a ton of funny stories to tell at all times. Uh, and Thurman, you know, was very kind of introverted and reserved in a lot of ways. And, and I think he was kind of attracted to Ron, you know, as a friend, because on some level he wanted to be more like Ron, but had a lot of his own personal issues that prevented him from being so, uh, you know, ebullient and effusive and, and, uh, uh, but when Ron and Thurman would go out on the town in New York together, Ron would sort of absorb the spotlight and Thurman could just kind of hang back and relax and and really enjoy being with people, whether it was kids at uh, the, you know, the local hospitals or, you know, that there's a story in the book about how they, they went, they were hanging out at 21, which is a, you know, big, then, then is now a big deal a restaurant in New York. And they're sitting there with Soupy Sales, who's, you know, is an old comedian and talking baseball and having beers. And Burt Bacharach and Angie, Angie Dickinson walk in, pull up a chair because, you know, turns out they're huge baseball fans. And Thurman and Burt Bacharach just totally hit it off. And and at the end of the evening, Burt slips Thurman his card like, you know, hey, man, like, you know, let, let's hang out sometime. And this completely blew Ron's mind because, you know, Thurman didn't think it was a big deal, but here's, you know, one of the greatest American songwriters and he wants to hang out with Thurman Munson and Thurman's just like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I guess I'll give him a call. You know, it's, it's, so it was really, you know, it's, it was a lovely friendship that they had. And then beyond that, and we get into this in the book, you know, the, these are, both Ron Bloomberg and Thurman Munson were guys who the Yankees really, you know, they counted on to become stars. These, they were number one draft picks one year after each other. They were supposed to be like the new generation to carry the Yankees to glory. And Thurman panned out like that. Thurman, indeed, he was that. He became the team captain, took the team to three World Series in a row. Um, and Ron just kept getting hurt. And, you know, and it's one of these things where you can be the most talented ball player imaginable, but if, you know, you, you run into bad luck and you run into walls, it's not gonna, it's not gonna pan out for you. And, and Ron wound up spending really, uh, two and a half seasons on the DL where the Yankees, you know, kept trying to get him healthy and he'd come back and he'd hurt himself again. And what happens, and I'm sure it happens today, but it definitely was the case back in the 70s, you know, players were very superstitious. If if one of their teammates kept getting hurt, after a while, they'd kind of shy away from him because they didn't want to get any of that on them. So Ron became kind of an outcast on the Yankees in those years. And Thurman was really the only guy who all through this, you know, was checking in with him every day, was pumping him up uh, with confidence, saying like, Bloomy, you got this, you're going to come back, we're going to, you know, you're going to be out on the field helping us. And, you know, when when Ron was telling me all this, I, w I was really moved by it, because, you know, it's, 
you know, yes, this is a baseball story, but this is a story about friendship and loyalty as well. And, and, you know, we all, we all need people like Thurman in our lives to help us, you know, when we're down to help us dust ourselves off and pick ourselves back up and, you know, face another day, even, you know, whatever crap we have to face. And I, I felt like this was something I never got from any article I read on Thurman back in the seventies this was not something I ever got from any of the biographies of Thurman that were written uh, following his death. And so I just felt like, you know, this needs to be shared with the world. People need to know who Thurman Munson, you know, really was in a broader sense. And I feel like the captain in me puts that across. Dan, you had me sold at Burt Bacharach. But, um, <laughs> no, I mean... Reggie, George Steinbrenner, Billy Martin, Sparky Lyle, of course, uh, wrote the, you know, the Bronx Zoo. Um, I find that whole era uh, of Yankees baseball fascinating. So I am all over this book, probably right when we finish this podcast. So I, awesome. I, I can't. What do you have? You have Amazon drone. You get it like within an hour. <laughs> That's right. So what do you got going on in Glencoe? Well, I want to tell Dan that, um, you know, I do audible a lot and uh, I did, uh, at least one of your books on Audible, and I believe you read it. Yes. And you were really good. And it's oh, thank you. It's very difficult. And now I'm going to get off on a rant here. It's very <laughs> difficult to be a good uh, book narrator. And I am so weird. And Benetti, I don't know if you do uh, Audible or, or, or books on, on audio. How weird are you? I mean, we're I talking will... in the 70s, so I figure we go match game. <laughs> I literally have favorite narrators and I will listen to books that I have necess not necessarily any interest in because I love the delivery. So, Dan, I want to pay you the compliment that uh, uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass was not only a great book, but it was very well read by you. So thank you. Thank you. That, that's, that's a high, coming from you, that's a high compliment indeed. It, it is so much more difficult to, to read your book uh, than it is to write it. I, 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 I thought like, you know, when, when I got the opportunity to do a um, audiobook of Big Hair and Plastic Grass, which is still the only audiobook I've done, I thought, yeah, you know, cool, no problem. And it was brutal. I mean, it was it was pretty much two straight weeks, four, maybe five hours a day in the studio. Uh, you know, around hour four, your voice really starts to go so i mean i have i have mad respect for anyone who could be on a mic for you know more than a couple of hours and uh and then of course you know you you listen to yourself talk and and you know it's i mean i i have this i mean it's hard for me when i do book readings to not just kind of like at some point you just kind of click into autopilot and you start reading reading the words without really hearing them. And so when you're in front of a microphone and, and you're listening back to what you've done, I mean, it's, it's, it's maddening. And, and uh, I, I'm really glad you, you found that it, it came out. Okay. Because I was not able to go back and listen to it after I finished it. I still haven't. Wait, really? You have not listened to it? I not listen to it. It's just like, Oh, you know, I got, you know, I'm spending, you know, what, ten, what is it like eight, compact discs worth of my voice I, I yeah no no thank you jason by the way here's the note of the day and uh thanks to kevin pierce and karen peaks who are two of the great uh, audiobook narrators and i've asked them these questions for the top of the heap roughly three hours it takes to do one hour of audio so if you have a book that 
is a 10 hour book. It'll take you 30 hours to record it. You should do that, Jason. You have a great narrator's yeah, voice. So I will say this I am also weird. I also have favorite audiobook narrators. So I, I actually, I was in LA once visiting a friend of mine and I found uh, Mike Chamberlain, who is another very, very good audiobook narrator who narrated the book Moonwalking with Einstein that I love. Uh, and I like peppered him with questions over lunch at a California pizza kitchen. So, <laughs> and I, he, like, but you have to be like the people who do this professionally. It is a grind. Like he's got his own studio in his garage. And then like he'll like play with the kids and then he'll go and record tracks for a while. I, I don't know that I have the attention span for that. How did you Dan? How like. How did you do that? Like, did you did you go to a studio somewhere? I, yeah, the, the, the company, um, that I think Blackstone Audio, who who did the, the, um, the uh, contracted to do the book, they basically rented a studio in Greensboro where I live, and uh, and uh, you know the, this the guy, you know, it's it's like a real deal recording studio, but the guy mostly does voiceover and commercial stuff now because. You know, everybody's doing music on Pro Tools and GarageBand at, at home. Um, so, so yeah, so we went in, and you know, he he was not a huge baseball fan, so you know, it 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 was the, the guy who produced it. So it was that also presented difficult difficulties because if I would pronounce. The name of a player incorrectly and which i'll admit i did on one or two occasions he wouldn't catch it so the, the people at blackstone would have to flag it and say like all right we need you to do this part over again because you you know uh, um you you mispronounced this guy's name and uh um but yeah that so i would go in every uh i think it was 10 days and i went in every day for like three, four, sometimes five hours if my voice was up to it. And I just, you know, and, you know, there would be breaks and stuff and I would drink tea with uh, lemon and honey to try to get my voice uh, uh, up, to, up to snuff. But, you know, it was, and it was during allergy season too. So that was also <laughs> messing with me. Yeah, it, it, it was, it, I mean, I have, like I said, I have massive respect for anybody who actually does that as a living because that is hard work. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm going to, you know, we're going to do a little hate here. We've done a lot of love, <laughs> but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you uh, the floor here because this has come up uh, on a previous conversation. I know you get asked a lot. Well, you've done the preeminent book about the 1970s. So of course you're going to write the book about the eighties hurts my heart a little <laughs> bit because I am a child of the eighties. I'm a, I'm a, just a few years younger than you. Um, but my baseball fandom is more set in the early eighties than it is the late seventies. But um that book is never, ever going to be written. Not by me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why. There is well, hate. <laughs> yeah, oh, there is hate. Well, there are, what it really comes down to is that, you know, and I, and I give this advice to would-be writers all the time. If you want to write a book, you better make damn sure it's on something that you love. Because not only do you have to ha spend a ton of time uh, trying to get it published, and you spend a ton of time with research material, then you have to spend at least a year uh, talking about it and talking about the subject matter to, to promote it. And 
I cannot think of anything less that I'd like to do than spend multiple years of my life revisiting the 80s. I just think there's so much about that decade that, you know, you know, again, talking about how the 70s impacted us to this day, there's so much about the way the 80s impacted us to this day that is not good uh, that I really just, and then there was just so much about it that was gross and and unpleasant and and sad and um, upsetting that, I yeah, I don't want to relive any of that. But without the 80s, we wouldn't have the music video for Take On Me by AHA. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm okay. I, I mean, I, I I like that video. I like that song. I, I, I mean, I do. There is a lot of 80s music that I like. But then it's it's like, you know, you want me to, you know, you know, it, to, to weave pop culture into the narrative the way I did with Big Hair and Plastic Grass uh, with an 80s book. You know, I'd have to talk about Madonna and Miami Vice and uh, uh, Alf and, you know, just like all, all this crap that that just, you know, was, it, it, you know, empty calories at the time and is still empty calories to this day. I just, I, I take, I would take no joy in it. So, so I have to admit that I've, I've basically run to the end of the earth in entertainment watching during the pandemic years. And I rewatched Alf. <laughs> and, and you, and you live to tell. I barely, but I will say my favorite fact about Elf is the guy who played the dad, Willie Tanner was a classically trained actor who like wanted nothing more than to be Iago. And he <laughs> took the pilot for the money. Right. And golden handcuffed himself to the furry dude from Elmac for years. Well, that that's, a, I mean, and that right there is about as 80s as you can get. Like just like <laughs> art going out the window for the sake of money and there, there you go. Yeah. What about baseball in the 80s didn't you like? Um, well, I thought it, I thought it got a lot more bland. I thought a lot of the, the characters that populated the seventies, some of them were still there for a bit, but I think, you know, a lot of them kind of, you know, had retired or, or, um, you know, there, I, I feel like the kind of chilling effect of the, you know, the incoming Reagan administration and, and all that kind of went with that in pop culture uh, also bled onto the, the field where, you know, players were not talking about smoking pot. And in fact, like, you know, the, those of those of, you know, who, who were involved in things like uh, cocaine, uh, you know, it became very scandalous in the sport. And, you know, you had the drug trials and, you uh, know, Pittsburgh and all this. And it was, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, huffing and puffing about, oh, how, how shameful this was to, you know, to, to the national pastime. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and the other thing I have to admit, like from 85 on, I just didn't follow baseball. Like it just wasn't interesting to me anymore. Like I, I you know, I, part of it was I really wanted there to be a dot or I'm sorry, a Tigers Cubs World Series in 84. And when the Cubs blew it in the playoffs, I just thought like, you know what? 
I should be putting my energy and emotions into something else. And, uh, you know, I, I was 84, I graduated high school. Um, you know, I was really into music. Uh, I was, I was starting to learn to play guitar. You know, it was just like, I'm going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on what makes me happy. And, you know, as happy as I was, the Tigers won it all in 84. It just like, it, it, it wasn't what I, I wasn't, as overjoyed as I felt I should have been by it. And so by, you know, by the second half of the eighties, like I'm in college, I'm playing in bands, I'm chasing girls, I'm, you know, I'm doing bong hits. It's like not, none of this stuff, you know, baseball wasn't as interesting to me as any of that. So uh, I, I, so in that sense, I just, I don't feel qualified to, to write about the eighties because, you know, 85 to, you know, to, really 98 is kind of a blank for me uh, where baseball is concerned. So you have a lot of guitars behind you. So let's talk a little music here for a second. Um, second best record of all time, because who's next is number one. Wow. Second Obviously. best. Yeah. which and, and just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Yeah. Uh, I've been, been meaning to give it some good headphone time again. <laughs> second best. Well, I'm going to go with Love's Forever Changes, uh, which, you know, many days that's my number one. But if we're, if we're saying who's next is number one, then 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 that that is an absolutely phenomenal album that continues to uh, uh, delight. Uh, I think I've got my first copy 35 years ago. So, yeah, I've never grown tired of it in, in that entire stretch. Well, let me make my case for who's next, because... Um... I think it's a nine-song record. Uh, it the the first and last songs are kind of to me the iconic Who songs. Uh, Won't get fooled again ends the ends the album. Baba O'Reilly opens it, and Dan, I can put that on my headphones now, and I can envision that album being released in whatever year I'm listening to it, whether it's. 1995, 2007, 2021, the production quality, and I know it's been remastered over the years, is so great and timeless that I could play that for a 17-year-old music fan and tell them this is a new band and a new record, and I think they would buy it. Is that a fair statement? Well, that's the, I mean, I, I, could see, uh, I could see a teenager still connecting with it, now just because of the emotion and the you know big rock action that that's part of i don't know you know it's interesting because like i i about five years ago i um i bought a original 1971 vinyl pressing of the album and i listened to it on headphones through uh you know old 70s receiver and old 70s headphones you know get try to get as close to the experience of you know what it would have been like as a you know kid listening to to it um when it came out and i was kind of shocked at how i mean and, and i mean this lovingly how ramshackle it is like there's this hurts can, my heart this no, hurts. no no but but i mean that in a cool way like right, it, right. it like like there's something about the record that when you hear those songs like on radio with like the compression of a radio broadcast, like it sounds very seamless and smooth and big and great. And when you listen to it on headphones, like on the original vinyl, it still sounds big and great, but like you can hear 
like the overdubs just kind of like patching in and then like clicking out again. You can like all of a sudden there's like a guitar bit over here and there's a guitar bit over here. And then there's like a little synth squiggle. And like it really I mean, and, you know, the more I've read about that album, you really understand like that's kind of the way it was put together. It was like thrown together in, in Pete's studio, home studio, the demos and like he's trying this and trying that. And like, there's a lot of experimentation and, and a lot of just kind of seat of the pants stuff like, okay, Hey, that worked cool. Move on to the next thing. And that actually makes me love it even more because like for a long time, I thought of it as this sort of like perfect monolith of rock, you know, which I loved, but it also like, you know, it was almost like too perfect and listening to it again now, like I realize how imperfect it is, and those imperfections make me appreciate it that much more. That's a great analysis, Dan. You totally saved it at the end there, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to use that now. Uh, right on. Before Jason jumps in on the music stuff, is rock and roll dead? And I hope the answer is no. Uh, no, I think it's absolutely not dead. I think um, I don't think it. I don't think it dominates. I don't think it has dominated popular culture or even, you know, the mainstream music uh, scene in the way that it did in the 70s or 80s or even, you know, 90s. Um, but I do, you know, I think you have a lot of mainstream rock bands that you know may not be to my taste, but are still very popular and still selling out, you know, huge sheds. Um, and you still have a lot of young bands that are, are, are coming up that are drawing on, you know, what's oldies to them, which, you know, is like Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and things like that. But it's still valid to them. So, I, I, yeah, no, I don't I don't think I don't think rock is dead at all. I'm sure you get asked a lot your first concert. So I'd like to know your first concert T-shirt. Ooh, wow, that's. You know, it's it was probably a little further along because I was like I didn't I didn't have a lot of money, a lot of a lot of extra money in high school. So it's like like whatever money I could get together to go to the show, that would be it. I wouldn't be buying any any. Uh, um, I I think I actually now that I think of it, the first t-shirt that i bought at a show would have been little steven and the disciples of soul in the summer of 84 because i i had a job and uh and that that was i was actually making decent money for first time in my life so i felt that like so so that so summer of 84 is really when my record collection started to you know, balloon and when my um, my concert T-shirt collection started to, uh, you know, uh, uh, accumulate because like I could justify spending money on 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 such things. And uh, and, and it's funny because I went that 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 show is very vivid in my mind because I was a big Bruce Springsteen fan. So, of course, like, you know, I was on board with little Steven and I still think. His first record, Men Without Women, is a fantastic and underrated record. Um, but I went to see him on the Voice of America tour, which would have been summer of 84. And he came, had the misfortune of coming through Chicago, like 
maybe two weeks after Bruce Springsteen had come through on the Born in the USA tour. So anybody who wanted to get their, you know, residual Bruce fix by going to see Little Steven, they'd already seen Bruce. So it was going to be hard to. So I, w- I went out with a friend. We, we had really, we literally front row tickets to see Little Steven at Poplar Creek, which is this, you know, shed uh, uh, outside of Chicago. And there were maybe 200 people there. It was so depressing. Like, like just like, like you saw like little Steven walked out and you could just see his face fall. Like, like, uh, like he was pissed that, that uh, nobody showed up, but it, it was a great show. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, I felt bad for him. So I bought a t-shirt. I was going to say you bought a pity concert t-shirt. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and it was terrible, too. It was all like neon color. It was sleeveless. I never buy sleeveless t-shirts, but it was just like, all right, man, like, you know, they're going to need some gas money. So uh, you you worked for a while in a in a record store, right? Yes, for for many years. Uh, I was I worked from 89 to 93 at a long-gone Chicago record store called See Here, which was right on North Avenue in, in Old Town. I think we need to have somebody, and you may be the guy to commission this book, somebody needs to write a book about hyper-creatives who once worked at record stores. That's a really good idea, actually, because you know so many... So many writers and musicians that I know uh, did their time uh, at you know behind the counter at record stores, and some at very cool ones, uh, some at legendary ones, some at not so cool ones like C here. So yeah, there, there there are a lot of a lot of sides to it. We were just talking about Poplar Creek and Alpine Valley in the booth like a couple weeks ago, like long gone concert venues. Uh, what what? What is your favorite concert venue you've been to and compare it to your favorite Major League Baseball stadium you've been to? Ooh, wow. Oh, that's a really that's a really good question. Um, favorite concert venue. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to have to go with uh, the Metro in Chicago. I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, it's kind of a hometown thing. I, I went to see so many great shows there in, you know, especially in the early nineties. Uh, I played there a bunch of times w- with a band that, that I was in back then, a band called Lava Sutra. Um, and it was, I mean, so much about it was, you know, it's intimate. The sound is great. The, you know, the bands are treated well, um, the audience is treated well, you know, it's, it just, it just was always a positive experience. I lived in LA for 25 years and there are so many venues that I saw uh, bands at where it was like, oh God, I got to go to this place, you know, uh, you know, and, and then there were great places like, like the Roxy and the Whiskey, which were great places to see shows but they weren't great places to play like the the sound on stage was weird but i always felt like metro was the whole package i guess you know it it would be hard to compare it to a i mean obviously the metro wrigley connection you know there there there's a lot there a lot of similarities there obviously they're across the street from each other um i think you know my favorite 
my favorite ballpark to this day and the one that if I could, you know, get in the time machine and go back would, would be Tiger Stadium in the 70s. And it was a, you know, it was a different experience, but than, than say going to see a show at the Metro, but it, but it's, it had that kind of intimacy, that kind of like old school vibe, um, you know, it was, you know, it was affordable. You could, uh, you could go see a ball game at uh, Tiger Stadium, and it didn't cost you an arm and a leg. You could take the whole family. You could go with friends and sit out in the bleachers, and and uh, and you would run into like old old Detroit musicians out in the bleachers. It was really, um, you know, it's like like the whole community went in a way that like I feel with the Metro. Like you know, I I would always run into people at the Metro that I hadn't seen in years because, Hey, it's a show at the Metro. It's, it's, you know, it's affordable. It's easy to go to. It's, it's a fun experience. Let's do it. And we should mention Joe Shanahan who owns Metro and also G man. And that is where we recorded our first episode uh, of socks degrees with Bob Odenkirk. So shout out uh, to Joe. Hey Joe. Yeah. Um, There's a song by Joe Walsh. And in, I think it's called Analog Man or something. I'm an analog man and in digital world or whatever. Mm. But I do think of Dan when I hear that song. <laughs> and I don't know if you think of yourself that way. Uh, you talked about vinyl. Um, I don't know if you have Spotify or, oh, yeah. or or Apple Music. And by the way, that's where you can listen to this podcast. So this is a weird question. But do you shudder at uh, the digital world a little bit or are you okay with it? No, I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, I think for, for a long time, you know, the CD revolution was a blessing because all kinds of stuff was getting reissued on CD, like old, old stuff from the fifties and sixties and seventies that you would have had no chance of ever hearing on vinyl because, you know, 500 copies are pressed and, you know, they're in the hands of collectors or whatever. You know, I, I think the CD revolution was great. I think, um, I mean, I have to admit that I don't really have many CDs at this point because, you know, when I'm at home, I like listening to vinyl. When I'm out for a walk, I listen to Spotify on my phone. When I'm in my car, I'll listen to CDs, but I'm not in my car that much these days. So it's, uh, you know, that it, there just isn't that much need to have CDs around and, you know, and they're, uh, uh, I, d- I don't find them as appealing from a tactile or visual perspective as, as I uh, find LPs. And yes, I do think that by and large, LPs sound better, especially if you have the right kind of equipment to, to listen to them on. Jason, I'm going to let you ask uh, Dan the exit question that you ask most guests. But unfortunately today, or fortunately, I guess, it speaks to Dan's uh, all-worldly uh, uh, knowledge you can't include baseball or rock and roll music in this question, right? Yeah, the difficult part of this is you already have a lot of specialties. So normally I'll ask somebody uh, if you were going to be quizzed for a million dollars on a topic other than baseball, what would it be? So if we took out baseball and music and you were going to get quizzed for a million dollars on a very specific topic... What would it be? I'd say 20th century architecture. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I um, well, yeah, when before I 
caught the music bug, I w really wanted, and, and, and after I realized I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player, uh, I, uh, the two things I wanted to be were uh, an archaeologist and, and or an, an architect. I w and when I moved to Chicago uh, in 1980, I would have been 13 and was really you know, Chicago is an amazing city for architecture and also has the um, Oriental Institute down at the University of Chicago and 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 a great uh, Egyptian section at the uh, Field Museum. So I spent a lot of time there just kind of uh, uh, grooving on Egyptology and uh, and uh, and then a lot of time walking around the city looking at old buildings. So, yeah, I, I, I could. Uh, I would at this point. I don't think I'm up. Uh, I think I've forgotten a lot about archaeology, so I don't think I could go there. But yeah, I could still do 20th century architecture for a million dollars. Did I read on your website that you wrote a song about Vander Rohe architecture? <laughs> yeah, I've got a little sort of musical uh, solo side project, which I call the Corinthian Columns. So again, with with the architecture uh, and and I wrote a song called Glass and Steel, which is about living in a Mies van der Rohe building on Lakeshore Drive uh, in the early 80s. And specifically an incident where the uh, um, one of the doormen uh, of the building got really drunk and uh, proceeded to lock everybody out of the lobby and urinate all over the uh, really expensive mid-century furniture in the lobby and then pass out in the corner. So I, I, I don't remember the guy's name, but I, I remember that incident very vividly and, and felt that it needed to be immortalized in song. That's a dude right there. <laughs> That's some good stuff for that guy. <laughs> Dan Epstein. Yes. You would get along well, I think, with our guest from a couple months ago who hosts the uh, web series Hot Ones, the uh, the chicken wing eating series. He's a big Sox fan. His name's Sean Evans, and he was an architecture tour guide on the boat when he was a kid. Oh, right on. Yeah. I, I think Sean and I would have a lot to talk about. Have you have you you've done the architecture tour, I assume, once or twice, or is that below you? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I actually <laughs> when I moved back to Chicago in. 2015, uh, and I, I was back in Chicago for a couple of years. That was one of the first things my wife and I did was uh, to take the uh, take the boat tour, and and uh, yeah, no, it's I, I would recommend it to anybody. I mean, even if you know all this stuff, it's just a it's a fantastic way to see those buildings from a different angle than you would ever get to see on uh, from the sidewalk. Dan Epstein, thanks so much for the time. We got to do this again. Uh, yes. Next time we have to go through the uh, MC5 discography and is Billy Martin a Hall of Famer? But we'll do that uh, the next time we have you on. Uh, the book is The Captain and Me, a uh, collaboration between Dan and Ron Bloomberg. And where can people find you on Twitter and other places? Uh, on Twitter, I am Big Hair Plassgrass. That's B-I-G-H-A-I-R-P-L-A-S-G-L-A-S. Just you know, one S with each. Uh, I'm uh, uh, my blog is uh, bighairplasticgrass.com, and uh, also have a Facebook page uh, of uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass. Just generally celebrating uh, the glory of baseball in the '70s. Thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it, Dan. Great stuff. Oh man, so so great, so much fun. Uh, anytime, uh, just let me know. 
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. 